This episode is brought to you by Catan. This summer looks a bit different than most summers. We're staying at home for the most part, and we're finding ourselves looking for new activities to enjoy at home. Catan is a board game for three to four players, ages 10 and up, although younger kids can play with adult guidance. It is a great way to keep families engaged in off screens, even if it's just for a little while. And those opportunities are hard to come by. And it's really easy to pick up. Get Catan at CatanShop.com slash mom. Listeners of our podcast get 10% off the original base game Catan by using the promo code mom at checkout. Offer not good on other Catan titles or merchandise. Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you peace of mind security. Because if it's connected, it's protected. Yeah, even your robot vacuum. Can your internet do that? Learn more at Xfinity.com slash XFi. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Molly. Molly, may I tell you a little story? Why, I think we would all love that, Kristen. Well, I'm going to tell you a story of a cocktail. And it's a cocktail that's the most stereotypically female cocktail that one can order at the bar. And I sometimes avoid ordering at the bar for that very reason. Molly, do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I have a guess. I have a guess. I'm going to go Cosmo. The Cosmopolitan. Yes. Yeah, the Cosmo, I think we could all agree, thanks to Carrie Bradshaw and her gang, um, is probably the most, you know, quintessential female, uh, alcoholic drink. I'm just gonna say it, girly drink. It's a girly drink, yeah. If, you know, whether you agree with it or not, you'll see a guy order it and you'll be like, oh, girly drink. Yeah. Or if you're like a woman, you're, you order a Cosmo, it's like, oh, what a, girl. <laughs> Where are your Manola Blahnik? <laughs> so anyway, uh, Molly and I tracked down uh, the history of the Cosmo, which was apparently better known than I thought it was, but I guess I just haven't been following my cocktail news over the past decade. But the, co- the Cosmo was in fact invented by a man. Surprise. Kind of like high heels. Huh? <laughs> How about that? Um, it was invented by a New York bartender named Toby Ciccini. Well, he didn't really invent it so much as give it its modern form. Or reinvent it. Really. Yeah, he, apparently, according to this article we found, he gets pretty pretty snotty when people say he invented it. Yeah, because well, let me let me just tell let me let me tell the story of, I know of you, the Cosmo. I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. Ruined my story. No, I'm kidding. So Toby was working at this bar in New York in the late eighties, and he befriended a coworker named Melissa who he called Mesa. And she was, uh, she was pretty sweet. She loved guitars. She even played in an all, all girl rock band, you know? And, uh, so Mesa and Toby would hang out at the bar and they would get drunk together and make up fancy new drinks together. And one day Mesa made this drink that she had while in San Francisco at this place called Life Cafe. And the drink was called a Cosmopolitan, and it was made with vodka, roses, lime juice, and grenadine. So it was, you know, like bright red. It was in a martini glass. And according to Toby, it tasted awful. 
So Toby and Mesa were like, hey, you know what? This drink looks pretty sweet, but tastes pretty bad. And so they reinvented it by substituting fresh lime juice for the Rose's lime juice. And then they use Cointreau to soften the citric bite, as Toby recounts. And then he added a little bit of cranberry juice to give it that little pink blush. And they shook it extra long and hard to make it all frothy and added a lemon twist for color and flourish. And hence... The cosmopolitan, as we know, it was born. Well, you left out one key ingredient. What? The absolute vodka. Oh, yeah. Molly Dutel. Well, I mean, that was just sort of the alcohol he he had substituted to give it a little bit more taste. And I, I was just a little worried when you were going to hand me such a low alcoholic Cosmo in this story you're telling. Yeah, that's more. Mine would have been the virgin Cosmo. <laughs> yeah. So, the, so, of course, yeah, they had the, the absolute vodka. And that's the, the Cosmo. But pretty soon, you know, Toby and Mesa's new concoction became this huge hit at the bar. And it got, in a, in a very New York kind of way, these, these bartenders got really annoyed because all of a sudden, you know, it went from this kind of in-crowd thing to all of a sudden everybody and their sister wanting a Cosmo. And Toby's all like, man, I don't even know if I've ever finished a Cosmo and I don't even like to admit that I invented the Cosmo because it just became this kind of burden yeah. for him. He had to shake up so many. And so all it was many. supposed to be was like this private in-joke between him and his friend. And next thing you know. I mean, I think this story you've just told us would make a perfect children's book about being careful what you wish for because you might just become a giant success. That yeah. seems to be the, mo- the moral of a lot of children's stories. It's true. Well, Molly, I think we've got an even better story to tell. That might not make a very compelling children's book. However, it's pretty fascinating. The story of women in bartending, because the thing about it is, you know, Toby and Mesa were behind the bar. You know, it's pretty egalitarian workplace, it sounded like. He made a drink, she made a drink, they shared ideas, and together they created this insanely popular cocktail. But you know what? took a long time for women to get behind the bar. That is true. Or on top of it, as some female bartenders get. Yeah, unfortunately. So... Let's go back in time, as we like to do sometimes on Stuff Mom Never Told You, to the way life was way back before... Uh, how far back you going? <laughs> I want to go as far back in time as possible. I, how about we just settle for like the late 1800s? Okay. All right. I mean, I, I know we've gone back further in time than in that. The, but... In the interest of our time... <laughs> And our listeners' times. Yes, let's start with the late 1800s. When I think that we would, uh, we would normally find, the woman we'd normally find working at a bar, we would call a barmaid. Yes. And you have the kind of that stereotypical picture, I guess, maybe handed down from German barmaids, mm-hmm. like German beer gardens. Rosy-cheeked, large-busted. For some reason, I'm thinking of long yellow braids, but isn't that the St. Pauli girl? Yes. Yeah. So we're going to leave, we're going to leave Europe out of it. We'll stay in the U.S., Goodbye, St. Polly girl, because at the end of the 1800s, there was this big crackdown on women in bars and any establishment that served alcohol, because at the time, as it would happen again through history, uh, a love of alcohol and uh, that would that would not be the most feminine, womanly thing a, a person could do. And, and they were really concerned about the, the moral upkeep of those women. Uh, they didn't want them in any place that served alcohol, so they couldn't even be, you know, sweeping the floor. Which was hard because these taverns were often attached to lodging and inns, and that was a very popular thing for women to make a living in. Right, and and at this time, bars were exclusively patronized 
by men. It wouldn't be until we have prohibition and the rise of speakeasies where everybody kind of had to sneak around to get, get a drink, uh, that you finally had it become a little more socially acceptable for men and women to, uh, to imbibe together. So we found this article in the Wall Street Journal by Eric Felton and he notes that in 1895, there was sort of a, a rudimentary census taken, um, and compared to almost 56,000 men who were bartending in the U.S. at the time. And that's in 1895. That's a lot of bartenders for back then. <laughs> you think? I think so. Um, but out of all of those men, you only have a documented 147 women working as bartenders. So it's extremely rare. And I bet for those women, life was probably not so easy. I, I, right. I bet that they had to kind of do it, do it in secret as well. well on the download, because they were essentially breaking the law at the time. Um, but then we have World War One come along and women got the chance to come in and do some of the bartending. Then, of course, the men came back and wanted their jobs back and they got them back. Then after World War One, we've got Prohibition. And uh, that, again, was a big, massive campaign to paint people who were drinking as, you know, loose of morals. The same thing that they had done at the end of the 19th century where it was just uh, really frowned upon for women to even be in the presence of alcohol. But the key thing business-wise that happened around this time after Prohibition ended was all the unions came in, uh, and you, the male bartenders were unionized, and the waitresses got the allowance to work in places that served alcohol, but they made this key concession that they wouldn't serve the alcohol themselves. And it doesn't appear that they even wanted to. They just wanted to be able to work in places where the alcohol was served because that would probably uh, end up more money for them. Right. And at around the same time, you have um, the unions pushing for laws such as maximum hour laws and weightlifting restrictions that would basically ensure that women would not be able to make the cut to be a bartender, even if they wanted to. But like you said, and this information is coming from a book by Barbara Reskin and Patricia Roos called Job Cues, Gender Cues, that really looks at the history of sex segregation in job industries. And they note that until 1943, the Hotel and Restaurant Employees and Bartenders International Union, which was basically like the bartenders union in the U.S., in their bylaws stated that bartenders' work was a, quote, cloister for the male gender. That's how closely they protected these positions. They really did not want women behind the bar. They didn't think that they could manage it. They were worried that basically women would somehow incite some sexual frenzy among their, their male patrons as they were drinking. And it would just ruin the entire atmosphere of these bars. Like bartending was supposed to be a man's job. And one of the quotes I loved, Kristen, uh, I don't think it was from this specific article, but it was about how a bartender's got to be, you know, the, the best conversationalist, got to know when to talk, when not to talk. And uh, the person was just like, and, and find me a woman who's ever known that difference. You know, even when we think about women as being so chatty, so nurturing, probably the exact kind of ear you want when you saddle up to a bar, even that was just twisted around on them so that they could not be that that friend at the bar. Now, when World War II rolls around, an interesting thing happens because a lot of times when we look at women's history, World War II is sort of the time when everything busts wide open for the first time. Women can take these jobs that were normally reserved for men while they're off fighting, and it starts to kind of uh, build up a little bit and you know, into second-wave feminism. However, 
It doesn't exactly happen with bartending because, yes, women, especially the ones who were unionized, those waitresses who were in the bartender's union, were allowed to go in and take the men's jobs. But when the soldiers came back, and with the GI Bill especially, they and, and with the backing of the union, they basically kicked the women out from behind the bar, gave the guys their jobs back. And not only that, but between 1948 and 1960, Almost half of the states had enacted laws by that point specifically restricting women from serving alcohol. Yeah, the only reason they let them serve during the war was so that they wouldn't have to give the spot to someone who was non-union. Now, we've got to go to 1948, Kristen, because that's a pretty key date in uh, the history of female bartenders. That's when the U.S. Supreme Court heard the case of Gossert versus Cleary. Now, at the time, as you said, there were a lot of laws on the books. One of them was that women could only work in bars if they were uh, the wife or daughter of the bar owner. Mm-hmm. And uh, the women in this case sued, saying that, you know, under equal protection, I should get to work and own this bar as well. And they were shot down by the uh, by the Supreme Court. There are some choice quotes from one Justice Frankfurter, who, um, you know, basically found that women you know, didn't really have much of a right in this. And even though he knew that this was, you know, being fought by the union so that they could retain all their business, he kind of was cheeky and was like, there's no evidence that uh, this is just a union thing to keep the men in business. So it was, you know, it's it's kind of funny to read uh, some of the quotes from this this case. Yeah, he took it sort of as a, as a joke. Like, how, why would... Why would they even try to challenge this? I mean, he says, quote, Michigan could, beyond question... Forbid all women from working behind a bar. This is so despite the vast changes in the social and legal position of women. He doesn't even care. He's like, no, 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 I don't think so. No, ladies, this is not go home. Now, 1964, we still have all those laws in place, but that's when we have Title VII. The old Civil Rights Act. Now, Kristen, you've got to tell me how the Civil Rights Act affects these female bartenders. All right, Molly, I'm about to blow some minds because when I read this, my mind was blown. And this also comes from Reskin and Roos's Job Cues, Gender Cues. And they concluded that, quote, the most dramatic effect of Title VII on women's access to male jobs occurred in bartending. Bartending. Yeah. You know, a lot of times when we talk about equal rights in the workplace and you know, women breaking through the glass ceiling. A lot of times we like to talk about CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and sort of that higher level corporate stuff. But the thing is, you know, we need to pay attention to these service industry jobs because, I mean, did you did you realize that with bartending? Did you ever think of bartending as, you know, the, the field in which women made the most dramatic progress? I did not. And, you know, by the end of the 80s, just 25 years or so after that act passes, bartending jobs are split 50-50 between men and women. Mm-hmm. And, and it's hard to think of another job where the split is so even. Well, actually, today, um, as of 2004, according to Bureau of Labor Statistics, women actually hold more bartending jobs in the U.S. than men. Now, the thing about service industry is, of course, it appeals to more women than men because typically women need more flexible hours. They need the more part-time options um, like that because of, as we've talked about many times on here, women have more responsibilities such as 
motherhood Mm -hmm. and caretaking and things like that. Um, so being able to work in, in the service industry is pretty important for women. But even though Title VII passed in 1964, up until 1971, we still have a law in California preventing women from being able to pour liquor. Right. And actually, there's a case in California that involved a topless bar. And that's when uh, sort of the, the floodgates opened when the Supreme Court struck down the the uh, clause, that law you're talking about, mm-hmm. in terms of a topless bar, which I think provides us a really nice segue, Kristen. Um, you know, we just sort of told the what I think is a pretty uplifting story of women making equal strides into a profession. But then again, you know, some of them are bartending in topless bars and have to somehow let's just say, look sexy for their role. I mean, I was in a bar last week. All the bartenders were female. All of them were wearing very scanty halter tops. Yeah. So I think that even though women have made great strides in this particular career path, I'm thinking that one of the reasons we don't think of them in terms of, you know, you know, great achievements in women's history is because so many of them become overly feminine, perhaps overly sexualized, in order to do their jobs. Yeah, sort of the two steps forward, one step back. Like one point that um, some of our research made was that in the 80s, one of the reasons why uh, women bartending really started to take off was because the Holiday Inn hotel chain, for instance, pretty quickly discovered that if they put an attractive woman behind the bar, hey, what do you know? All of a sudden, bar revenues pick up. Mm-hmm. And you found one paper that uh, considered the case of one Darlene Jesperson, who worked at Harris Casino as a bartender. And, you know, she had worked her way up to become a bartender. And this paper discussed the fact that between, you know, a bartender in a casino and a cocktail waitress in a casino, there's this huge hierarchy. You know, one means one thing in terms of knowledge and experience, and, and one means another thing. And so Harris came in and said, all our female employees, be them cocktail waitresses, or bartenders are going to have this very certain look. And the look was a lot of makeup. Mm -hmm. And this really infuriated Jesperson because she was like, I've worked so hard to be equal with guys, and now they're going to paint my face and put me on par with cocktail waitresses. And I'm sure her experience is not unique. Perhaps the, you know, way she fought back is unique. But, you know, I think that when you think of a female bartender, you do think of that very uh, heavily made up, uh, scanty top sort of, sort of appearance. And I think it's worth noting too that this casino in question, not surprisingly, is in Reno where kind of that idea of the, the showgirl, the cocktail waitress, the over sexualized bartender is pretty much par for the course there. But the, uh, the, the women who wrote this paper for the Duke Journal of Gender Law and Policy made a really interesting point that in a sense, the female bartenders' faces were commodified and sold to customers as part of the Harris branded service exchange. And I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's not very good cocktail talk, <laughs> uh, you know, the commodification of, of women's faces. But there is a point, you know, I mean, we were talking about this before we started recording the podcast, sort of feeling like, you know, are we are we bad feminists or bad women in our sisterhood if we kind of do look down a little bit on women bartenders who are wearing maybe lower cut dresses or lower cut shirts and and kind of sexing themselves up to get more tips? Um, or is it just 
part of the game? I mean, are they just gaming the system? Well, that takes us really nicely to this paper by Julia uh, Kuzimaku and Laura Treader, and I'm sure I, I butchered that first name. But it was an interview with uh, two separate bartenders about this very subject, about how they felt in working in what, you know, is is pretty pretty fair to say it's a highly sexualized environment. People sure. go to bars to meet other people. They're meat markets. They're Let's meat markets. It. Let's face it. And, uh, you know, like you said, it's part of the game that, you know, if you flirt a little, do you get a bigger tip? You know, if you wear one top and not another, do you get a bigger tip? And they were asking these women how they felt about it. And one woman they interviewed was 21, just starting out. Uh, but she saw herself in this field long term. And one woman owned the bar and had been in it for, for several years, was 29. And both of them said, you know, the fact that you're putting yourself on display, that you are putting up with, you know, what would be in any other environment, sexual harassment, doesn't bother them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they did point out that they uh, were not able to maintain long-term relationships, probably because of the hours. But the authors of the paper hinted at the fact that it might be because they do have such a sexualized profession that values that cheap contact uh, and that very flashy appearance. But here's the thing, though. I mean, individual cases are going to change. Obviously, if you're working at the local dive bar, you're not going to be making as much as a high-end bar in, say, New York. But overall, um, women are not get- getting back what they are putting out, if you will. Because even though we've made all these strides, and even though there are more women bartending in the U.S. than there are men, there is still almost the exact same wage gap between women and men bartenders as there is across the board in the U.S. As of 2004, at least, according to Bureau of Labor Statistics, women bartenders made 80 cents for every dollar that male bartenders made. Now, that might have to do with the fact that there are more maybe bar male bar owners or bar managers than there are females. So I I don't know, maybe that has, maybe that has something to do with it. But for some reason, when I read that, it just infuriated me because it's like, okay, all right. I I get the wage gap on the corporate level because women, A, don't do a good enough job of negotiating their salaries from the get-go and B, businesses will, will pay men more just flat out. But this is a service industry, and we have influence over this. We're tipping these people. How is this happening, Molly? Can we, you know? Well, I think that we probably touched on that very sense of discomfort that maybe a woman has going into a bar. And if she's served by someone who is wearing a low-cut top, I mean, you would think that wearing a low-cut top would get you a bigger tip from someone who's attracted to that sort of thing. But maybe if you're someone like us who's kind of grappling with, is it, more powerful to uh, have this job that's very equal with males or is it more powerful to have all your clothes on? I mean, maybe maybe we have that sort of feminist subconscious acting. I mean, I'm not saying I'm badly tipping people who are wearing low-cut shirts, but I wonder if that's part of the issue is just your level of comfort with a female bartender, male or female. Yeah, you know, I think that they are kind of gaming the system. They are having to sort of do what they want to do. I mean, like, is it probably fun to have to wear a halter top all night and, you know, pour drinks for tips? No, I'm sure it's very, it's very demanding work and it's very physically demanding work. And not to mention that you have to deal with drunk people for eight hours. But, uh, I think that maybe, maybe our whole takeaway from all of this is that maybe it's time, especially as women, for us to look at women bartenders in a different light. Well, and I think it's really funny that you said that it might not be fun 
or that it might be really demanding because I just want to throw out one thing here at the end and that's the uh, bar Coyote Ugly. Oh, Coyote Ugly, yes. From the film of the same name is based on this bar and the movie kind of loosely based on this article for GQ written by Elizabeth Gilbert who went on to write Eat, Pray, Love. She spent a little time bartending in Coyote Ugly and she, I was reading the article this morning and she makes wearing no clothes and dancing on bars and doing shots with your customers sound really empowering. I could see that. You know, if you are in charge of all of that, uh, if you're in charge of a room, how could you, how could you have any more power? You're in charge of a room. Well, it's interesting, Molly, that you bring up this, this issue of kind of empowerment and authority because there was uh, a, a paper that we ran across by Richard Osejo called Women Bartenders and the Construction of Boundaries, where he really makes the point that um, yeah, I mean, you know, bartenders in a way are, you know, your, your confidants and they're also sort of sexual objects to some degree and they are also entertainers, therapists, mothers, etc. But by and large, a really good bartender, male or female, but since we're talking about women, a really good woman bartender has a ton of authority over a room full of men and women. She basically has to sort of you know, open herself up enough to be a friend, but never cross that boundary line to where she loses any type of authority because, you know, yeah, things can get kind of wild when you have a group of people drinking whiskey for five hours. Yep. Is that what you normally do when you go to a bar? Drink whiskey for five hours? (laughs) Straight whiskey for five hours. Come join me, people. Well, the next time you're in a bar, hopefully we've given you some, some food for thought. Because after all this drinking, you better get some food in you. Yeah, let's not forget, it was a hard-won battle mm-hmm. for us to get behind the bar. Yeah, it's not the boardroom. Yes, we're talking about the bar, okay? We're but not-, not everyone wants to be in a boardroom, so that's why we got to open it up to our listeners and see what they think about it. Exactly, Molly. So let's do that. Let's hear from you guys. It's momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email. Send us your thoughts. And, Molly, I think that this would be a great time to read some emails. Okay, first up, I have an email from Monica. This is about the Children's Literature Podcast, and it's kind of a reprimand, Kristen. She writes, you both profess to have loved Ramona Quimby, but why don't you know the characters' names? Every time you said Henry Higgins, I cringed. It's Henry Huggins. Oh, I think that was a My Fair Lady moment. Henry Higgins, that's right, the professor of My Fair Lady. I also love My Fair Lady. She writes, I am very particular about my children, childhood books, and as your elder, by not that many years, uh, I feel the need to politely scold you. Anyway, I love the podcast, so thank you, Monica, for forgiving that oversight from us. All right, well, I've got an email here from Drew, and it is about driving. He said, I've been a gear- gearhead since long before I could drive. Consequently, I read a lot of driver-related articles. I have come to believe that almost all, quote, good driving studies try to answer the wrong question. When people say that one person is a better driver than another, they don't mean a safer or more careful driver. Instead, they are thinking of someone who is skilled at navigating through traffic, parking in tight spots, finding destinations, and who has good situational awareness. But all the studies on the subject seem to focus only on safety and risk. I've never heard anyone called a bad driver for wrapping a sports car around a tree at 100 miles per hour. These people are called reckless. On the other hand, plenty of people are called bad drivers because they can't maneuver into a parking space and because they are constantly lost. 
I would love to find a study that addresses the idea of good driving rather than safe driving, although I suspect the results would be just as vague when it comes to comparing the sexes. Thank you, Drew. Very interesting thought. So if you guys have any thoughts on anything we talk about uh, or things we don't talk about and that we should, give us an email, momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can follow us during the week at Twitter at momstuffpodcast and on Facebook at Stuff I Never Told You. And you can read our blog of the same name at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Hi, I'm Amy Nelson. And I'm Sam Edis. We're the hosts of iHeart's newest podcast, What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. We both have our own businesses, and between us, we have seven children. And since the moment we met, we've been sharing our stories with each other. The thing is, we all know the stories of industry titans like Bezos and Jobs, but the stories of women, they remain incomplete. We ask questions no one else even touches. We are not afraid to get personal. So listen to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Paper Ghosts is a true crime podcast that investigates the search for the person responsible for the abductions of four missing girls in neighboring New England towns. For more than 50 years, each case has remained unsolved. Every day is like being lost in limbo. I pray every day that we find Lisa so we can go on. It wasn't until this past year that things took an unexpected turn. A breakthrough. Answers to decades-old questions and witnesses finally ready to talk. I know that that's the person that was there. I can describe what he's wearing. I can smell him a mile away. Jesus, Mary, and Josephine, I hope that's not a grave for many. Oh, You know what? I think it is. Listen to Paper Ghosts on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.